Did you know The Sleepy Bookshelf has a sibling podcast with all original stories and meditations? It's called Get Sleepy, and I'm sure you'll love it. I even narrate some of the stories. Just search for Get Sleepy in your preferred podcast player. Thank you, and sweet dreams. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me. Tonight we're returning to Anne of Avonlea. First, though, let's take a minute or two to be still and present. Put aside all those noisy machines vying for your attention with their buzzes, notifications and rings. Set yourself to do not disturb. They'll still be there later or tomorrow. Just now, you need to rest. Let go of any tension or anxiety in your body and just sit or lay quietly and still. If any thoughts or emotions are still moving around through your body, remind yourself that you don't need to do anything about them right now. Just now, you need to rest. If you have an urgent sense that you must do something, know that there will be time for that later or tomorrow. Just now, you need to rest. And if at any point you feel like you're doing or thinking something on purpose, acknowledge it and return to your stillness. Remember, just now, you need to rest. Now breathe calmly and peacefully as I recap on our last episode. Previously, the AVIS were distraught over the news that Judson Parker had sold his fencing along the main road to a pharmaceutical company as advertising space. No one could change the very suave and convincing man's mind, no matter how hard they tried. But one day, Anne came to the meeting to announce that he had told her to pass on that he had done just that. The fencing would not be sold after all. What Anne didn't tell anyone was that she had caught Judson Parker taking a bribe in return for his vote in the general election. Mortified, Mr. Parker hoped Anne wouldn't speak a word to anyone, telling her he would put a stop to the pharmaceutical advertising in the meantime. Some weeks later, Anne was going to the cemetery to put flowers on Matthew's grave, Marilla's very sweet brother, 
who had passed away suddenly the year before. She was met on the road by little Paul Irving, who had been very sad, sitting alone and thinking about his late mother. Then she walked home with Mrs. Allen, who mentioned again how she hoped Anne would consider college, but reminded her that any path she chose would be the right one. Tonight, we pick up with Anne expecting an exciting visitor. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 16 The Substance of Things Hoped For Anne, said Davy appealingly, scrambling up on the shiny, leather-covered sofa in the Green Gables kitchen where Anne sat, reading a letter. Anne, I'm awful hungry. You've no idea... I'll get you a piece of bread and butter in a minute, said Anne absently. Her letter evidently contained some exciting news, for her cheeks were as pink as the roses on the big bush outside, and her eyes were as starry as only Anne's eyes could be. I ain't bread and butter hungry said Davy in a disgusted tone. I'm plum cake hungry. Oh, laughed Anne, laying down her letter and putting her arm about Davy to give him a squeeze. That's the kind of hunger that can be endured very comfortably, Davy boy. You know it's one of Marilla's rules that she can't have anything but bread and butter between meals. Oh, give me a piece then, please. Davy had been at least taught to say please, but he generally tacked it on as an afterthought. He looked with approval at the generous slice Anne presently brought to him. You always put such a nice lot of butter on it, Anne. Marilla spreads it pretty thin slips down a lot easier when there's plenty of butter. The slice slipped down with tolerable ease, judging from its rapid disappearance. Davy slid headfirst off the sofa, turned a double somersault over the rug, then sat up and announced decidedly, Anne, I've made up my mind about heaven. I don't want to go there. Why not? Asked Anne gravely. Because heaven is in Simon Fletcher's garret. I don't like Simon Fletcher. Heaven in Simon Fletcher's garret? Gasped Anne, too amazed even to laugh. Davy Keith, whatever put such an extraordinary idea into your head? 
Milty Balter said that's where it is. It was last Sunday in Sunday school. The lesson was about Elijah and Elisha, and I up and asked Miss Rogerson where heaven was. Miss Rogerson looked awful offended. She was cross anyhow, because when she'd asked us what Elijah left Elisha when he went to heaven, Milty Balter said, his old clothes, and us fellows all laughed before we thought. I wish you could think first and do things afterwards, because then you wouldn't do them. But Milty didn't mean to be disrespectful. He just couldn't think of the name of the thing. Miss Rogerson said heaven was where God was, and I wasn't to ask questions like that. Milty nudged me and said in a whisper, Heaven's in Uncle Simon's garret, and I'll explain it on the road home. So, when we was coming home, he explained. Milty's a great hand at explaining things. Even if you don't know anything about a thing, he'll make up a lot of stuff so you get it explained all the same. His mother is Mrs. Simon's sister, and he went with her to the funeral when his cousin Ellen died. The minister said she'd gone to heaven, though Milty said she was lying right before them in the coffin. He supposed they carried the coffin to the garret afterwards. Well, when Milty and his mother went upstairs after it was all over to get her bonnet, he asked her where heaven was that Jane Allen had gone to and she pointed right to the ceiling and said, Up there. Milty knew there wasn't anything but the garret over the ceiling, so that's how he found out. He's been awful scared to go to his Uncle Simon's ever since. Anne took Davy on her knee and did her best to straighten out his theological tangle also. She was much better fitted for the task than Marilla, for she remembered her own childhood and had an instinctive understanding of the curious ideas that seven-year-olds sometimes get about matters that are, of course, very plain and simple to grown-up people. She had just succeeded in convincing Davy that heaven was not in Simon Fletcher's garret, when Marilla came in from the garden, where she and Dora had been picking peas. Dora was an industrious little soul, and never happier than when helping in various small tasks suited to her chubby fingers. She fed chickens, picked up chips, wiped dishes, and ran errands galore. She was neat, faithful and observant. She never had to be told how to do a thing twice and never forgot any of her little duties. Davy, on the other hand, was rather heedless and forgetful, but he had the born knack of winning love. And even yet, Anne and Marilla liked him the better. While Dora proudly shelled the peas and Davy made boats of the pods 
with masts of matches and sails of paper, and told Marilla about the wonderful contents of her letter. Oh, Marilla, what do you think? I've had a letter from Priscilla, and she says that Mrs. Morgan is on the island, and that if it is fine, Thursday, they're going to drive up to Avonlea and will reach here about twelve. They will spend the afternoon with us and go to the hotel at White Sands in the evening because some of Mrs. Morgan's American friends are staying there. Oh, Marilla, isn't it wonderful? I can hardly believe I'm not dreaming. I dare say Mrs. Morgan is a lot like other people, said Marilla dryly, although she did feel a trifle excited herself. Mrs. Morgan was a famous woman, and a visit from her was no commonplace occurrence. They'll be here to dinner then? Yes. Oh, I know, Marilla. May I cook every bit of the dinner myself? I want to feel that I can do something for the author of The Rosebud Garden. If it is only to cook a dinner for her, you won't mind, will you? Goodness, I'm not so fond of stewing over a hot fire in July that it would vex me very much to have someone else to do it. You're quite welcome to the job. Thank you, said Anne, as if Marilla had just conferred a tremendous favour. I'll make out the menu this very night. You'd better not try to put on too much style, warned Marilla a little alarmed by the high-flown sound of menu. You'll likely come to grief if you do. Oh, I'm not going to put on any style, if you mean trying to do or have things we don't usually have on festal occasions, assured Anne. That would be affectation, and although I know I haven't as much sense and steadiness as a girl of 17 and a schoolteacher ought to have, not so silly as that, but I want to have everything as nice and dainty as possible. Davy boy, don't leave those pea pods on the back stairs. Someone might slip on them. I'll have a light soup to begin with. You know, I can make lovely cream of onion soup. And then, a couple of roast fowls. I'll have the two white roosters. I have a real affection for those roosters. And they've been pets ever since the grey hen hatched out just the two of them. Little balls of yellow down. But I know they would have to be sacrificed sometime, and surely there couldn't be a worthier occasion than this. But, oh, Marilla, I cannot kill them. Not even for Mrs. Morgan's sake. I'll have to ask John Henry Carter to come over and do it for me. I'll do it volunteered Davy. If Marilla will hold him by the legs, because I guess it'd take both my hands to manage the axe. It's awful jolly fun to see them hopping about after their heads are cut off. Then I'll have peas and beans and creamed potatoes and a lettuce salad for vegetables, resumed Dan. And for dessert, Lemon pie with whipped cream and coffee and cheese and ladyfingers. I'll make the pies and ladyfingers tomorrow 
and do up my white muslin dress. I must tell Diana tonight, but she'll want to do up hers. Mrs. Morgan's heroines nearly always dressed in white muslin. Diana and I have always resolved that that was what we would wear if we ever met her. It will be such a delicate compliment, don't you think? Davy, dear, you mustn't poke peapods into the cracks of the floor. I must ask Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy to dinner too, for they're all very anxious to meet Mrs. Morgan. So fortunate she's coming while Miss Stacy is here. Davy, dear, don't sail the peapods in the water bucket. Go out to the trough. I do hope it will be fine Thursday. I think it will. For Uncle Abe said last night when he called at Mr. Harrison's that it was going to rain most of this week. That's a good sign, agreed Marina. Anne ran across to Orchard Slope that evening to tell the news to Diana, who was also very much excited over it. And they discussed the matter in the hammock swung under the big willow in the Barry Garden in the Barry Garden. Oh, Anne, mayn't I help you cook the dinner? implored Diana. You know I can make splendid lettuce salad. Indeed you may, said Anne unselfishly. And I shall want you to help me decorate too. I mean to have the parlour simply a bower of blossoms, and the dining table is to be adorned with wild roses. I do hope everything will go smoothly. Mrs. Morgan's heroines never get into scrapes or are taken at a disadvantage, and they are always so self-possessed and such good housekeepers. They seem to be born good housekeepers. You remember that Gertrude in Edgewood Days kept house for her father when she was only eight years old. When I was eight years old, I hardly knew how to do a thing except bring up children. Mrs. Morgan must be an authority on girls when she has written so much about them. I do want her to have a good opinion of us. I've imagined it all out a dozen different ways. What she'll look like, what she'll say, what I'll say. I'm so anxious about my nose. There are seven freckles on it, as you can see. They came at the AVIS picnic when I went around in the sun without my hat. I suppose it's ungrateful for me to worry over them when I should be thankful they're not spread all over my face as they once were. But I do wish they hadn't come. All Mrs. Morgan's heroines have such perfect complexions. I can't recall a freckled one among them. Yours are not very noticeable, comforted Diana. Try a little lemon juice on them tonight. The next day, Anne made her pies and lady fingers, did up her muslin dress, and swept and dusted every room in the house. A quite unnecessary proceeding, for Green Gables was, as usual, in the apple pie order dear to Marilla's heart. But Anne felt that a fleck of dust would be a desecration in a house that was to be honoured by a visit from Charlotte E. Morgan. 
She even cleaned out the catch-all closet under the stairs, although there was not the remotest possibility of Mrs. Morgan seeing its interior. I don't want to feel that it's in perfect order, even if she isn't to see it, Anne told Marilla. You know, in her book, Golden Keys, she makes her two heroines, Alice and Louisa, take for their motto that verse of Longfellow's. In the elder days of art, builders wrought with greatest care each minute and unseen part, for the gods see everywhere. And so they always kept their cellar stairs scrubbed and never forgot to sweep under the beds. I should have a guilty conscience if I thought this closet was in disorder when Mrs. Morgan was in the house. Ever since we read Golden Keys last April, Diana and I have taken that verse for our motto too. That night, John Henry Carter and Davy between them contrived to execute the two white roosters, and Anne dressed them. The usually distasteful task glorified in her eyes by the destination of the plump birds. I don't like picking fowl, she told Marilla. But isn't it fortunate we don't have to put our souls into what our hands may be doing? I've been picking chickens with my hands, but in imagination, I've been roaming the Milky Way. I thought you'd scattered more feathers over the floor than usual, remarked Marilla. Then Anne put Davy to bed and made him promise that he would behave perfectly the next day. If I'm as good as can be all day tomorrow, will you let me be just as bad as I like all the next day? Asked Davy. I couldn't do that said Anne discreetly. But I'll take you and Dora for a row in the flat right to the bottom of the pond, and we'll go ashore on the sand hills and have a picnic. It's a bargain, said Davy. I'll be good, you bet. I meant to go over to Mr. Harrison's and fire peas from my new popgun at Ginger, but another day will do as well. I expect it'll be just like Sunday, picnic at the shore will make up for that. Chapter 17 A Chapter of Accident Anne woke three times in the night and made pilgrimages to her window to make sure that Uncle Abe's prediction was not coming true. Finally, the morning dawned pearly and lustrous, in a sky full of silver sheen and radiance, and the wonderful day had arrived. Diana appeared soon after breakfast, with a basket of flowers over one arm and her muslin dress over the other, for it would not do to don it until after the dinner preparations were completed. Meanwhile, she wore her afternoon pink print and a lawn apron fearfully and wonderfully ruffled and frilled and very neat and pretty 
and rosy she was. You look simply sweet, said Anne admiringly. Diana sighed. So I've had to let out every one of my dresses again. I weigh four pounds more than I did in July. And where will this end? Mrs. Morgan's heroines are all tall and slender. Well, let's forget our troubles and think of our mercies, said Anne gaily. Mrs. Allen says that whenever we think of anything that is a trial to us, we should also think of something nice that we can set over against it. If you're slightly too plump, you've got the dearest dimples. And if I have a freckled nose, the shape of it is all right. Do you think the lemon juice did any good? Yes, I really think it did, said Diana, critically and much elated. Anne led the way into the garden, which was full of airy shadows and wavering golden lights. We'll decorate the parlour first. We'll have plenty of time for Priscilla said they'd be here about twelve or half past at the latest, so we'll have dinner at one. There may have been two happier and more excited girls somewhere in Canada or the United States at that moment, but I doubt it. Every snip of the scissors as rose and peony and bluebell fell seemed to chirp. Mrs. Morgan is coming today. Anne wondered how Mr. Harrison could go on placidly mowing hay in the field across the lane, just as if nothing were going to happen. The parlour at Green Gables was a rather severe and gloomy apartment with rigid horsehair furniture, stiff lace curtains, and white antimacassars that were always laid at a perfectly correct angle, except at such times as they clung to unfortunate people's buttons. Even Anne had never been able to infuse much grace into it, for Marilla would not permit any alterations. But it is wonderful what flowers can accomplish if you give them a fair chance. When Anne and Diana finished with the room, you would not have recognized it. A great blue bowl full of snowballs overflowed on the polished table. The shining black mantelpiece was heaped with roses and ferns. Every shell of the whatnot held a sheaf of bluebells. The dark corners on either side of the grate were lighted up with jars full of glowing crimson peonies, and the grate itself was aflame with yellow poppies. All this splendor and color mingled with the sunshine falling through the honeysuckle vines at the windows in a leafy riot of dancing shadows over walls and floor, made of the unusually dismal little room the veritable bower of Anne's imagination, and even extorted a tribute of admiration from Marilla, who came in to criticize and remained to praise. 
Now we must set the table, said Anne, in the tone of a priestess about to perform some sacred rite in honour of a divinity. We'll have a big vase full of wild roses in the centre, and one single rose in front of everybody's plate, and a special banquet of rosebuds only by Mrs. Morgan's, an allusion to the rosebud garden, you know. The table was set in the sitting room with Marilla's finest linen and the best china, glass and silver. You may be perfectly certain that every article placed on it was polished or scoured to the highest possible perfection of gloss and glitter. Then the girls tripped out to the kitchen, which was filled with appetizing odors emanating from the oven, where the chickens were already sizzling splendidly. Anne prepared the potatoes, and Diana got the peas and beans ready. Then, while Diana shut herself in the pantry to compound the lettuce salad, Anne whose cheeks were already beginning to glow crimson, as much with excitement as from the heat of the fire, prepared the bread sauce for the chickens, minced her onions for the soup, and finally whipped the cream for her lemon pies. And what about Davy all this time? Was he redeeming his promise to be good? He was indeed. To be sure, he insisted on remaining in the kitchen, for his curiosity wanted to see all that went on. But as he sat, quietly in a corner, busily engaged in untying the knots in a piece of herring net he had brought home from his last trip to the shore, nobody objected to this. At half past eleven, the lettuce salad was made, The golden circles of the pies were heaped with whipped cream, and everything was sizzling and bubbling that ought to sizzle and bubble. We'd better go and dress now, said Anne, for they may be here by twelve. We must have dinner at sharp one, for the soup must be served as soon as it's done. Serious indeed were the toilette rites presently performed in the east gable. Anne peered anxiously at her nose and rejoiced to see that its freckles were not at all prominent, thanks either to the lemon juice or to the unusual flush on her cheeks. When they were ready, they looked quite as sweet and trim and girlish as ever did any of Mrs. Morgan's heroines. I hope I'll be able to say something once in a while, not just sit like a mute, said Diana anxiously. All Mrs. Morgan's heroines converse so beautifully, but I'm afraid I'll be tongue-tied and stupid. I'm sure to say, I seen. Haven't often said it since Miss Stacy taught here, in moments of excitement, it's sure to pop out, Anne. If I were to say, 
I seen before Mrs. Morgan, I'd die of mortification, and it would be almost as bad to have nothing to say. I'm nervous about a good many things, said Anne, but I don't think there is much fear that I won't be able to talk. And, to do her justice, there wasn't. Anne shrouded her muslin glories in a big apron and went down to concoct her soup. Marilla had dressed herself and the twins and looked more excited than she had ever been known to look before. At half past twelve, the Allens and Miss Stacy came. Everything was going well, but Anne was beginning to feel nervous. It was surely time for Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan to arrive. She made frequent trips to the gate and looked as anxiously down the lane as ever her namesake in the Bluebeard story peered from the tower casement. Suppose they don't come at all, she said piteously. Don't suppose it would be too mean, said Diana who, however, was beginning to have uncomfortable misgivings on the subject. Anne, said Marilla, coming out from the parlour, Miss Stacy wants to see Mrs. Barry's willowware platter. Anne hastened to the sitting room closet to get the platter. She had, in accordance with her promise to Mrs. Lynde, written to Miss Barry of Charlottetown, asking for the loan of it. Miss Barry was an old friend of Anne's, and she promptly sent the platter out with a letter exhorting Anne to be very careful of it, as she had paid $20 for it. The platter had served its purpose at the Aid Bazaar and had then been returned to the Green Gables closet, for Anne would not trust anybody but herself to take it back to town. She carried the platter carefully to the front door where her guests were enjoying the cool breeze that blew up from the brook. It was examined and admired. Then, just as Anne had taken it back into her own hands, a terrific crash and clatter sounded from the kitchen pantry. Marilla Diana and Dan fled out, the latter pausing only long enough to set the precious platter hastily down on the second step of the stairs. When they reached the pantry, a truly harrowing spectacle met their eyes. A guilty-looking small boy scrambling down from the table with his clean print blouse liberally plastered with yellow filling and on the table the shattered remnants of what had been two brave becreamed lemon pies Davy had finished raveling out his herring net and had wound the twine into a ball then he had gone into the pantry to put it up on the shelf above the table where he already kept a score or so of similar balls, which, so far as could be discovered, served no useful purpose 
save to yield the joy of possession. Davy had to climb on the table and reach over the shelf at a dangerous angle, something he had been forbidden by Marilla to do, as he had come to grief once before in the experiment. The result in this instance was disastrous. Davy slipped and came sprawlingly square down on the lemon pies. His clean blouse was ruined for that time, and the pies for all time. It is, however, an ill wind that blows nobody good, and the pig was eventually the gainer by Davy's mischance. Davy Keith, said Marilla, shaking him by the shoulder. Didn't I forbid you to climb upon that table again? Didn't I? I forgot, whimpered Davy. You've told me not to do such an awful lot of things that I can't remember them all. Well, you march upstairs and stay there till after dinner. Perhaps you'll get them sorted out in your memory by that time. No, Anne, never you mind interceding for him. I'm not punishing him because he spoiled your pies. That was an accident. I'm punishing him for his disobedience. Go, Davy, I say. Ain't I to have any dinner? Wailed Davy. You can come down after dinner is over and have yours in the kitchen. Oh, all right, said Davy, somewhat comforted. I know Anne will save some nice bones for me, won't you, Anne? Because you know I didn't mean to fall on the pies. Say, Anne, since they are spoiled, can I take some pieces upstairs with me? No. No lemon pie for you, Master Davy, said Marilla, pushing him toward the hall. What shall we do for dessert? asked Anne, looking regretfully at the wreck and ruin. Get out a crock of strawberry preserves, said Marilla consolingly. There's plenty of whipped cream left in the bowl for it. One o'clock came, but no Priscilla or Mrs. Morgan. Anne was in agony. Everything was done to a turn, and the soup was just what soup should be couldn't be depended on to remain so for any length of time. I don't believe they're not coming after all, said Marilla crossly. Anne and Diana sought comfort in each other's eyes. At half past one, Marilla again emerged from the parlour. Girls, we must have dinner. Everybody is hungry and it's no use waiting any longer. Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan are not coming, that's plain, and nothing is being improved by waiting. Anne and Diana set about lifting the dinner, with all the zest gone out of the performance. I don't believe I'll be able to eat a mouthful, said Diana dolefully. Nor I. I hope everything will be nice for Miss Stacy and Mr. and Mrs. Allen's sakes, said Anne listlessly. When Diana dished the peas, 
She tasted them, and a very peculiar expression crossed her face. Anne, did you put sugar in these peas? Yes, said Anne, mashing the potatoes with the air of one expected to do her duty. Put a spoonful of sugar in. We always do. Don't you like it? But I put a spoonful in too when I set them on the stove, said Diana. Anne dropped her masher and tasted the peas also. Then she made a grimace. How awful! I never dreamed you had put sugar in because I knew your mother never does. I happened to think of it for a wonder. I'm always forgetting it, so I popped a spoonful in. It's a case of too many cooks, I guess, said Marilla, who had listened to this dialogue with a rather guilty expression. I didn't think you'd remember about the sugar, Anne, but I'm perfectly certain you never did before. So I put in a spoonful. The guests in the parlor heard peal after peal of laughter from the kitchen, but they never knew what the fun was about. There were no green peas on the dinner table that day, however. Well, said Anne, sobering down again with a sigh of recollection. We have the salad anyhow. I don't think anything has happened to the beans. Let's carry things in and get it over. It cannot be said that the dinner was a notable success socially. The Allens and Miss Stacy exerted themselves to save the situation, and Marilla's customary placidity was not noticeably ruffled. But Anne and Diana, between their disappointment and the reaction from their excitement of the forenoon, could neither talk nor eat. Anne tried heroically to bear her part in the conversation for the sake of her guests, but all the sparkle had been quenched in her for the time being, and in spite of her love for the Allens and Miss Stacy, she couldn't help thinking how nice it would be when everybody had gone home and she could bury her weariness and disappointment in the pillows of the East Gable. There is an old proverb that really seems at times to be inspired. It never rains, but it pours. The measure of that day's tribulations was not yet full. Just as Mr. Allen had finished returning thanks, there arose a strange, ominous sound on the stairs, as of some hard, heavy object bounding from step to step, finishing up with a grand smash at the bottom. Everybody ran out into the hall. Anne gave a shriek of dismay. At the bottom of the stairs lay a pink conch shell amid the fragments of what had been Mrs. Barry's platter and at the top of the stairs knelt a terrified Davy, gazing down with wide-open eyes at the havoc. 
Davy, said Marilla ominously. Did you throw that conch down on purpose? No, I never did, whimpered Davy. I was just kneeling here, quiet as quiet, to watch you folks through the banisters. My foot struck that old thing and pushed it off. I'm awful hungry, and I do wish you'd lick a fellow and have done with it instead of always sending him upstairs to miss all the fun. Don't blame Davy, said Anne, gathering up the fragments with trembling fingers. It was my fault. I set that platter there and forgot all about it. I am properly punished for my carelessness. Oh, what will Miss Barry say? Well, you know she only bought it, so it isn't the same as if it was an heirloom said Diana, trying to console. The guests went away soon after, feeling that it was the most tactful thing to do, and Anne and Diana washed the dishes, talking less than they had ever been known to do before. Then Diana went home with a headache, and Anne went with another to the East Gable, where she stayed until Marilla came home from the post office at sunset with a letter from Priscilla, written the day before. Mrs. Morgan had sprained her ankle so severely she could not leave her room. And oh, Anne dear, wrote Priscilla, I'm so sorry, but I'm afraid we won't get up to Green Gables at all now, for by the time Auntie's ankle is well, She will have to go back to Toronto. She has to be there by a certain date. (sighs) Well, sighed Anne, laying the letter down on the red sandstone step at the back porch where she was sitting, while the twilight rained down out of a dappled sky. I always thought it was too good to be true that Mrs. Morgan should really come there. That speech sounds as pessimistic as Miss Eliza Andrews. I'm ashamed of making it. After all, it was not too good to be true. Things just as good and far better are coming true for me all the time. I suppose the events of today have a funny side too. Perhaps when Diana and I are old and grey, we shall be able to laugh over them. Feel that I can't be expected to do that before then, for it has truly been a bitter disappointment. You'll probably have a good many more and worse disappointments than that before you get through life, said Marilla, who honestly thought she was making a comforting speech. It seems to me, Anne, that you are never going to outgrow your fashion of setting your heart so on things and crashing down into despair because you don't get them. I know. Too much inclined that way, agreed Anne ruefully. When I think something nice is going to happen, I seem to fly right up on the wings of anticipation. And the first thing I realize, I drop down to earth with a thud. But really, Marina, 
flying part is glorious as long as it lasts. It's like soaring through a sunset. I think it almost pays for the thud. Well, maybe it does, admitted Marilla. I'd rather walk calmly along and do without both flying and thud. But everybody has their own way of living. I used to think there was only one right way. Since I've had you and the twins to bring up, I don't feel so sure of it. What are you going to do about Miss Barry's platter? Pay her back the $20 she paid for it, I suppose. So thankful it wasn't a cherished heirloom, because then no money could replace it. Maybe you could find one like it somewhere and buy it for her. I'm afraid not. Platters as old as that are very scarce. Mrs. Lynde couldn't find one anywhere for the supper. I only wish I could, for of course Miss Barry would just as soon have one platter as another, if both were equally old and genuine. Marilla, look at that big star over Mr. Harrison's maple grove. With all that holy hush of silvery sky about it. Gives me a feeling that is like a prayer. After all, when one can see stars and skies like that, little disappointments and accidents can't matter so much, can they? Where's Davy? said Marilla with an indifferent glance at the star. In bed, I promised to take him and Dora to the shore for a picnic tomorrow. Of course, the original agreement was that he must be good. He tried to be good, but hadn't the heart to disappoint him. You'll drown yourself, all the twins rowing about the pond in that flat, grumbled Marilla. I've lived here for 60 years and I've never been on the pond yet. Well, it's never too late to mend, said Anne roguishly. Suppose you come with us tomorrow. We'll shut Green Gables up and spend the whole day at the shore, daffing the world aside. No, thank you, said Marilla with indignant emphasis. I'd be a nice sight, wouldn't I, rowing down the pond in a flat. I think I hear Rachel pronouncing on it. There's Mr. Harrison driving away somewhere. Do you suppose there is any truth in the gossip that Mr. Harrison is going to see Isabella Andrews? No, I'm sure there isn't. He just called there one evening on business with Mr. Harmon Andrews and Mrs. Lynn saw him and said she knew he was courting because he had a white collar on. I don't believe Mr. Harrison will ever marry. He seems to have a prejudice against marriage. Well, you never can tell about those old bachelors. And if he had a white collar on, I'd agree with Rachel that it looks suspicious. I'm sure he was never seen with one before. I think he put it on only because he wanted to conclude a business deal with Harmon Andrews, said Anne. I've heard him say that's the only time a man needs to be particular about his appearance, because if he looks prosperous, the party of the second part won't be so likely to try and cheat him. I really feel sorry for Mr. Harrison. I don't believe he feels satisfied with his life. Must be very lonely to have no one to care about except a parrot, don't you think? But I notice Mr. Harrison doesn't like to be pitied. Nobody does, I imagine. 
there's Gilbert coming up the lane, said Marilla. If he wants you to go for a row on the pond, mind you put on your coat and rubbers. There's a heavy dew tonight. <laughs>